QUT acknowledges that Turrbal and Yugara as the First Nations owners of the lands where QUT now stands. We pay respects to their elders, laws, customs and creation spirits. We recognise that these lands have always been places of teaching, research and learning. QUT acknowledges the important role Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people play within the QUT community. And here at How To Academia, we also acknowledge that these lands have never been ceded. Welcome to How To Academia. Leaving high school and joining the world of uni can be a weird and difficult time, but on this podcast, we talk to our friends, students and academics, to find out how they went about the process of developing professional skills, dealing with challenges, and generally navigating the gooey mess of being human in the academic world. Our guest this episode is Julie Andrews. No relation. Julie is an undergraduate student in Justice and Law at QUT. In this interview, Julie discusses her experiences as a mature-age student, how to cultivate the confidence to speak up, and her passion for Indigenous justice. Without any further ado, Julie Andrews. Welcome to How to Academia. Who are you? Who am I? I'm Julie Andrews. I am a justice student at QUT, majoring in criminology and policing and law. And I'm a a mum to four adult children. And I've actually enjoyed studying on campus with two of my children. Oh, in similar degrees or? Different degrees. Okay. Yeah, different degrees. Emily graduated last year in law, and I was actually fortunate enough to work with her on an assessment in one of your classes. Really cool. So working with her on an assessment at university as a mature age student was fantastic and fun, and we found out so much about each other outside of the context of mum and daughter. So a wonderful experience and it was fascinating, fun and uh, I think we did pretty well on the assessment which was also a bonus. Um, And my other daughter I'm studying with currently and we hope to graduate together at the end of the year is Steph and she's doing an engineering degree. Oh, awesome. What excellent young women you have raised. Yeah, they are amazing. And I've got another young woman who's about to graduate this year as well from year 12. And I've got an amazing son who is the oldest and uh, he's uh, kicking goals and running a plumbing business. And yeah, bought his house at 19 and yeah, happy days. I love that. Yeah, I would not be a plumber for all the money in the world, but it's a good thing they make a good buck in plumbing absolutely oh and not to forget the husband yes Uh, i've been married to my absolutely fantastic wonderful amazing man wayne um for 30 years and we've been together for 32 wow yeah he's incredible i love him dearly that is a good innings i'm loving this whole like what a great little family unit it's wonderful how old are you Joy, oh, just to be rude. Just to be rude. Hey, there's no rudeness in age. Age is just a number. I am 52. I'll be 53 in June. And how long have you been at uni? I started in 2018, so part time. I'm in my fifth year, and as I said, I hope to graduate at the end of the year. Have you previously studied at uni? No. Why on earth did you decide <laughs> in your your late 40s go? I'm going to do a degree. It's been a 
almost like a 30-year hiatus, I guess, because um, back in, in the day when I was at high school, one of my dreams was to go to university and to study law and be involved in that space. Mm. Not necessarily as a lawyer. I don't ever think that I wanted to be in a courtroom, but I wanted to certainly advocate for some of the most disadvantaged people in our country being Indigenous and then layering that on top of youth. So that's where I always wanted to be. My dad was in the police, um, Tasmanian, I'm from Tasmania, from the Tasmanian Police Department for about 40 years before he retired. So I lived, breathed, grew up, and basically my whole life was around police investigation. Mm. I love the CID. A couple of my dad's really good friends were criminal investigators, and I love that space. I get quite interested in, in crimes against more so marginalised individuals, mm. and that's where my interest in youth justice and Indigenous justice sort of grew. But then times changed as I grew through my high school years and various traumatic experiences happened and I had to adapt, adjust and changed a few of my goals and found myself pretty much homeless at the age of 16. So that meant that I needed to... hmm, perhaps have a little bit of a think about how I was going to change those circumstances and get a job and what that looked like. So I ended up going into government, took the public service exam and got into government and got myself a job and then life just went on and I couldn't get out of Tassie quick enough so I got on a plane Ah! at at nearly 19. I was 18 and a half and I grabbed my younger sister and I said, come on, we're going to Queensland. So we did that and we moved in with mum and then I met my amazing husband and then, yeah, we sort of just didn't really quite, timing wasn't right for uni at that point. But, yeah, it was about... Six years ago, I just went, you know what? It's time for a change. I could feel it. You know, mm. It wasn't something that was dead and buried, but I'd been contemplating it for a while. And I said to the family, I think I'm going to apply to uni. And they just turned around and went, what? Really? And at first I thought, well, where am I going to go? You know, <laughs> what, Mum, you're too old for that and all that sort of stuff. But my husband went, you know what? You've been wanting to do this ever since I've known you. Go and do it. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. So I did. And I felt I've always been really smart at school. I was mm. like in the top three students all the way through high school. And I thought, I've got the smarts, but that was a long time ago. Is that going to sort of, you know, transplant into you know, uni? And how does that look? And everything changes, you know, the type of study, how the study looks. I was an encyclopedia with it. Britannica person. I wasn't internet, you know, based research or anything like that. And then I sort of put my application forward and I went, yeah, no, I'm not good enough for that. I probably won't get in. And then I got the QT and I got Griffith and UQ and I'm like, oh, yeah, you did. I've got options. Good for you. That's awesome. It was good. And then I felt like a bit of an imposter. Oh, but they don't really know me. Did they read too much into my application? Do they actually think I'm smarter than what I am? Oh, no, what have I done? So my first semester here was really me, you know, navigating that feeling and learning to not fear it but embrace it, harness it and just use it to my advantage. Of all the excellent options, why did you choose QT Justice? 
my oldest daughter was here, so that that was a, a de- not a deciding factor, but that had had an influence. But also, I love what QT stands for. It's as they say, university for the real world. But I love the practical applications. I heard some really good things about QT. I spoke to a number of people that were around my kids' ages, particularly my son. My son's nearly 26, so I knew a few justice-type students Mm. that were in his cohort that had been to QUT. And I thought, I'll just tap in and see what they think. I also came to campus as well. Mm. So I came, I looked, I asked the questions. I went to the open day as well with my daughter when she... Both my daughters, actually, when they came um, to assess whether they wanted to come. And they came during, like, their grade 12 Mm. or grade 11. And I went and I had a talk to the Justice Guild girls and, yeah, just had a good look. And I thought, no, this is the end for them. It it felt right. It's got all the right stuff. Look, I love it, open days, when the kids come up and it's their mum asking all of the questions. (laughs) That was me. (laughs) And it turns from... um, Mum's interest turns from mum's interested in this behalf of the kid to mum going, actually, I think I want to do a justice degree. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, do a justice degree. Pretty much. Yeah. Um, what were the what were the barriers for coming back to study as a new, mature age student? I actually think they're self imposed. Oh, tell me more. I don't think there are barriers that are set up by universities everything is made really available when I rang up and spoke to QT Griffith and UQ initially just to do a bit of research everyone that I spoke to was like absolutely we cater for everybody Mm. all you need to do is this visit this site here's some information I got emails with links and all sorts of stuff from the all the universities this one a QT provided me with a lot more so mm. I felt a little bit more embraced but it was me it was my own sense of self and my sense of do I deserve to do this mm. am I smart enough is it too late? What is the career community outside of QT? It's all well and good to be embraced, included in a learning environment. But when I step outside of QT, what's that space look like? Mm. Am I going to be challenged because I'm older? Is ageism still a thing? So I've had to address a lot of those internal barriers myself and put them to bed. And I've decided that ageism isn't a barrier. I've still got a lot of years, whether it be actively in the workforce or whether it be consulting or however that looks, because I love what I do and I love the fact that I can contribute. And the other thing is that support. I've got so much support at home. I've got so much support on campus, off campus. Tutors, lecturers are all incredibly giving Mm. of their time but also of their support and suggestions of what I can do and opportunities like this one. This is a great opportunity. How did you overcome those barriers, even if they are self-imposed, to step up to the plate? I think it was time and to trust that what I'm doing is the right thing. 
Also have a plan. That's really important as well because if you don't plan, then all you're going to do is trip over yourself. Mm. So I really put down a plan in place of what I wanted to achieve, when I wanted to achieve it, and what I needed to do for those difficult times. So the times where I doubted myself, the times where, you know, I was struggling, the times when the demons would tap me on the shoulder and go, oh, you're not real, you're not real smart, you really shouldn't be here, save it for the young ones, all those sorts of things. So having a plan, like talking to people that could help me, so talking about asking lots of questions, because the more information you have, the better equipped you mm. are to be able to deal with those sorts of self-doubts. And also... Trust the process. It's here for everybody. And I don't think that, no, I know I don't doubt myself anymore. Awesome news. Did you come with the intention of having a career? Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's face it, uni's not cheap. It really is not. I am here for a good time, but I'm also here for a, a purpose. I'm loving my experience on campus. I love my experience sitting in lectures, which is great to have them back, by the way, after COVID, you know, ransacked it for a while. But I do have a purpose. I do want to work in the space that I wanted to work in way back when I was a 12, 13, 14, 15-year-old mm. child. Because it's still relevant and that's both disturbing and encouraging yep. at the same time. And I'm excited by the prospect that I could potentially have an impact on that area, whether it be from advocacy, legislation, working in, in spaces that help navigate, you know, people away from the system or help provide better services to affect the system in, in different ways, then I think that's a good thing. And if I'm given the opportunity to be able to do that, then I go for it. What do you think the advantages are of being a mature age student? I come with lots of lived experience. I don't sweat the small stuff. I'm not scared of traditional things that teenagers or young adults are scared of because I've been there, I've done that, I've made mistakes, I've got the T-shirt, I, I, I can kind of deal with it. But being a mature-age stu student also comes with other things. It comes with a sense of, I guess, that fear that I talked about before mm. that you need to overcome. But it also gives you lots of opportunity because I'm not scared of asking questions. You know that. I, look, I love mature <laughs> students for that very reason is that they'll actually talk to us. Yeah. I will fill a void. So if there's a lecture space or if there's uh, a tutorial space or a workshop online even, mm. and I absolutely feel for you guys when you're trying to conduct online sessions and you've just got these blank screens with little names and nobody's engaging and you've got crickets in the background. I am quite happy to throw that camera on, turn my mic on and just do it. I will say I will say the things that some of the younger ones won't say. Because I don't care. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. Yeah. And I'll own that. And I'm grateful for the information that corrects me as well. Because one of the things about being mature age is sometimes you bring some biases with you because that's just normal. Because when you get to 50, 
you come with some baggage, you come with some biases, you come with opinions, you come with stuff that's driven by life, and sometimes you just park it. So I've learned to park a lot of stuff and be really open like a sponge, and it's really good because I actually, and I think it comes from being with my children and, and growing up with my children and studying with my children, is that, number one, I've learned to think really critical, mm. and that's what uni's taught me. I've learned to accept that everybody has an opinion and everybody's opinion matters. I've also learned that ask all the questions because no question is a stupid question. So that's the benefits of being mature age student, I think. What would your advice be to uh, not mature age students in that space? How do you get to that point of being willing to fill the void? And, like, we have some amazing younger students who will engage in some great discussion but those students that still feel a bit intimidated about it what would your advice to them be again let's just park the age i just think that i feel for them i do feel because you can sense them you can see those individuals in the room when you walk in you know who the chatters are who the ones that are reserved the ones who won't speak the ones that will take the purple post-it note as per <laughs> your class but it's i think it's part of our job as well as to to encourage them to acknowledge them to head nod to go oh yeah that's great yeah that's really valid i really liked your point there to engage with people online with the discussion forums like you will get somebody, you can read through a discuss, set of discussion forum answers and you can tell the ones that are a little bit hesitant, the ones that have just dipped their toe in the water and just put a really passive response that's sort of fence-sitting, but they know they have to engage in that because it's accessible, but they have to say something and they're not really sure about what they're saying. And I'll just tap in and go, hey, love your comment. And you know what, how you feel a bit fearful about that? Absolutely agree. Embrace it run with it and take risks because mm. this is a safe space seriously uni i think is a really safe space so if you're young if you first year uni even if you're last year uni and you're still grappling with that self-confidence and that ability to trust yourself in that sort of space with other people just run with it mm. take a risk take a risk because the feeling you get when you start getting those responses back and the acknowledgement from people who are up the front of the class or, you know, you, your colleagues in the class, that feels so good. That recognition, that sense of contribution and acknowledgement and peer support and you think, oh, yeah, that felt good. So you're less inclined then to sit back in your chair next time if you have a thought you're probably more inclined to share it. Mm. And look, no question is a stupid question. No amount of contribution is not valuable. So that's what I would always advise to, to those people. It's such a challenging space to be in that kind of figuring out where your voice is and feeling as if you might get shot down or you might be wrong or I think having people disagree with you is a really challenging life skill that I know I still struggle 
with mm. figuring out how to respond when people disagree with me and how to have those conversations. But this should be the space, safe space. Oh, to do that. I agree with you. Because guess what? You step out of uni, like I've been in the workforce for 35 years in all manner of spaces. I've been a business owner. I've been director, recruiter, trainer. I've been in sales for 15 years of that in real estate. So I know the dynamics there and the people that will challenge you and negotiate with you and shut you down. And I've been that female director, sort of leader, business owner who, um, because I wear a skirt, gets treated differently by my cohorts and how to navigate that space confidently. I've been in all of that. So it's really good that when you're in uni or in a safe space that you can practice those skills of being assertive and having some self-determination. You're in charge of your own life. I don't care who you are, what you are, you know, whether you wear trousers, whether you wear a skirt, whether you like guys or girls, I don't care, dark skin, light skin, it doesn't matter because you're individual Mm. and your opinion matters. So get used to that here, practice it here, and when you go out to the big wide world, you're armed a little bit with some mm. skills and some tools to deal with what's out there. I hundred percent agree. I think this should be this should be one of the skills that we allow to be practiced at university is how to deal with having a voice in difficult situations and being able to stick with that. What do you think the difference will be between your past careers, very varied there, and your career in justice? Red tape. Ooh, tell me more. Mm. Bureaucracy, red tape, the idea that big wheels turn really slowly. And that's a phrase my husband uses a lot. But it's true. So that's something that I'm going to find a challenge because I'm used to being uh, somebody who is the navigator of my own ship and I decide timing and I decide when we you know how what when because being a business owner or self-employed you can do that you've got Mm. that luxury of making decisions and and being in charge of your own destiny but I think what I'm going to have trouble with is that red tape is the time to affect some change because let's face it, where I want to go in the spaces I want to work with, they've been straining against the system and, you know, father time for for as long as anyone can remember mm. to be able to pro- provide some avenues of justice and equality and, and access and opportunities for youth and Indigenous to, to be able to achieve better outcomes Mm. for a really long time so I know that when I step out into whether it be corrections or whether it be you know DJ or whether it be a private consultancy or whether it be in more of a legal space legal aid or any form of advocacy it's going to be it's going to be tough so I'm going to have to learn to be patient (laughs) (laughs) where did your passion for Indigenous young people come from? Look, you know, when you read a story or you see a film or you listen to breaking news or something like that and something just gets you right there and you well up and you get this big knot in your chest and 
yeah, you start to hurt in your jaw and then you start to fire up and you get something in your belly. That's what happened to me. Whenever I hear about youth and the injustices, their contact with the justice system and then the Indigenous overlay of that, so our youth that are Indigenous that are victims you know, more than once they're re-victimised because mm. of who they are. I get really fired up about that because we should be doing better. We're a really smart country. We have a lot of resources and yet we still treat our Indigenous and our Indigenous youth so appalling. Mm. I get fired up from that. And this has come from studying. I took a, a, a large interest in Indigenous history when I was at school and then more latterly as I moved through in my life, I've always just had an interest in modern history and, and their Indigenous and colonisation and how that's impacted stolen generations. And then, you know, you get those political sort of moments in time where you get the, the apology and, you know, how has all those little moments in time affected change? And from the outsider looking in who really hasn't been involved in a lot of research until I came to uni, you know, a lot of changes happened. You know, you look at, you know, there's been a lot of inquiries into Indigenous deaths in custody and then you look at, you know, um, the Fitzgerald inquiry where it comes to a lot of corruption and how that's interplays with police treatment and culture and how that's affected Indigenous uh, con contact with the criminal justice system and it's all just snowballs. Mm. So it's been a process over time. That's where I went now's the time mm. i've got to get in and i've got to somehow get involved because it interests me do you feel as if you've been able to shape your justice degree around your interests undoubtedly undoubtedly and it's really interesting that you asked me before about why qut because this is the only university that was able to shape those oh really to the point I'm being very selfish here. To what I want, the criminology degree at UQ was obviously wonderful and I know a few graduates from there and that's fantastic, but this was more sociological. Yeah. This was more... This, I can use everything I've done at UT, everything, and channel it all into what I want to do. So that is really important to me, that every single unit I've done, I can use. And it's not necessarily content per se, but the way that is shaped and delivered to support other areas of my study. Like I chose law as a second major because there's a lot of like human rights, mm. dispute resolution. There's a lot of different areas of law that really underpin the justice trajectory, which is where I want to head. So, Is there anything that you think we could be doing better? This is one of those questions on those surveys. <laughs> and I never... <laughs> I never actually answer it because I always go, no, you're amazing. Because, oh, my goodness. I, it all just comes back to why I chose QT because you, you do things really well here and there's nothing that 
right down to the, the quality of the guest speakers, you know. Like I've just come from a policing in context lecture with Brendan Rook and he's incredible. He's mm. like such an incredible investigator on the, the the local and international stage. He's very highly regarded. To have access to those resources and make them available to us little QT students is incredible. It really is. So I honestly, I cannot even suggest you where I would say. <laughs> well, if you come up with only anything, let me know. I, like, I mean, I think students are the, the lifeblood of any university. They're the thing that really keep it going. And I think in that we need to value their role in an educational experience. It's like family, isn't it? You've got all these different members of the family that all contribute in some way, shape, or form. You've got mum and dad in a traditional family set up or, you know, primary caregivers, and then you've got kids. And everybody contributes in different ways. Everybody has a purpose. Everyone has a role. And I think by getting everybody connected and communicating and reflecting, which I think is another skill I've really learned in uni, is the art of reflection. Mm. Because until you reflect on yourself, your interactions, your skills, your experiences, and how you've combined that with other people and other students in your university and lecturers and tutors, etc., etc., you can't really get the most out of your experience. Mm. You can't grow because that's where we become critical as well of what we've done. So that's where I've learned that it's really important to recognise just how powerful students are in a lecture or a workshop mm. because everybody's ideas bounce and you get one idea and then boom, it just fires and it's really important to recognise that. I mean, and that's, that's the thing I feel as an academic that like, I'm still learning and I'm still trying to figure out life and I may know more about a content area but that experiential level is so different and vast amongst us students. Mm. I think it's important that we value that and we tap into that. We provide opportunities for that mm. to grow. Yeah. In 15 years' time, what do you think the one image from your time at uni is that will stick in your head? One image. I'm hoping it will be me with my cap and gown. Yeah. That is what it's going to be. Because I look at my daughter and I'm incredibly proud of her and she overcame a lot of things to get where she is as well. And to look at her photo on the wall with her cap and gown and the biggest smile on her face, that's what I visualise for myself. And because of where I came from and some of the trauma I've experienced in my time that led me to be homeless at 16 and also to have experienced some other coping mechanisms that were perhaps not ideal in my life there are a lot of people including me that would not ever expect to see a photo of me in a cafe down the wall so that's what I'm really striving for. I love that absolutely love that the only thing that got me through my PhD at the end of the game was the floppy hat <laughs> Just wanted that floppy hat, really. It's all that I just the only thing that image of the floppy hat was the only thing that got me through. If you could change one big thing in Indigenous youth justice, what would it be? 
They need a seat at the table. They need to be represented in Parliament. That's what I see. That's what, If I could see that, that there is an Indigenous arm of government, mm. for me, I think that we're doing all right as a country. It would be the first time that I could see that happening. And there is obviously the, the criticism that by having an Indigenous arm of government that that in itself is, I guess, what's the term, not equal because mm. why should they have an Indigenous arm of government and that's sort of, yeah, an about face. But I think they deserve it because if you look at the earlier statement from the heart and how that all, you know, blends together and how that, all it is is a series of statements that say, look, all we want is to be heard. Mm. We want to be respected. We want to have cultural recognition. We want self-determination. We want native title. How hard is that, guys? How hard is that? It's not hard. Pretty hard, apparently. But clearly, because, and here we go, red tape again, the bureaucracy, da, 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 big wheels turn slowly. But it's recognition that these, fundamentally, if these things are incorporated into the Australian federal government and then more, I guess, across local government, state government, etc., etc., that forces focus on Indigenous issues. That then gives us the ability to channel resources. That gives them a seat at the table. It gives them a voice. That's what, what I'd like to see. What do you think needs to change for that to happen? Well, I'm going to be really controversial. Can I be controversial? You can totally be controversial. Controversial is my favourite thing, Julie. You should know that. Yeah, I know that. I just thought I'd ask. <laughs> you know, I just like to poke, you know. I poke. Can I poke? Poke away. <laughs> great life skill. I honestly think we need to move away from this ideology as a nation of putting middle-aged, white, grey-haired men in charge because while we continue to do that, we will continue to have the same problems. Until we change that narrative of what we should be doing as a nation and where our focuses should lie, we are always going to have a problem with white versus Indigenous. Always. And it's just going to be a clash. We can write the apologies. We can stand up and say sorry that we stole a generation. We can make all of those necessary accolades to make us look good, but until that changes then I don't think there's much hope. Mm -hmm. And that is my fear. So I'm hoping that as we see more and more Indigenous inclusion in QUT environments, for instance, um, you know, tertiary study, as we see them engaging more in the legal fraternity, we've got the first barristers and first, you know, head of medicine and all those sorts of things that are Indigenous. Yeah, it's good to recognise that, but let's give them a voice. That's, mm. you know, that's the issue. It's such a struggle around power being the central issue and the I struggle even with this notion of giving them a voice and it's one of the, the key kind of struggles in the research that I do with survivors of 
violence mm. is this notion of power and giving something when Indigenous persons have had systems of government, Indigenous peoples have had voice, mm. Indigenous peoples have had solutions to problems that we, I say this as a coloniser, as a descendant of colonisers who continues to benefit from that system, we continue to think that we give them something rather than recognising the space that is occupied and the capacity for that to expand and the necessity of that Absolutely. expanding. Yeah, totally agree. And until there's some sort of shift, we're always going to be struggling with this, always. Yeah, I don't know that that's a single shift if that's a series of shifts that need to make. But, hey, you know, I'm all for kicking out the old white men. Like, they've had their run. Which might be. (laughs) Not that, like, you know, but this notion of needing to to diversify representation and having a seat at the table is one of the key shifts that is necessary to make. Okay, so... In the interest of time, what's been your favourite subject or assessment at uni? I'd have to narrow it down to a piece of assessment that I enjoyed because, as I've said before, I love, I've loved all of my units. There's not one that I actually favour out of all of them. But there was a piece of assessment. I elected just to fast-track my degree a little bit and did summer school, which was fun in itself. And I did case studies in major crime with Dr. Dean Byron, who was incredible. And we studied a series of major crime cases. And it wasn't just about murder. It was a lot of white-collar crime, gangs, um, you know, environmental disasters and all those sorts of things. But one of the key pieces of assessment that we could choose from was the Barrowville murders. And, of course, I chose that because it has an Indigenous link. And essentially what that involved was... There were three Indigenous children in um, the Barrowville Mission in northern New South Wales that were murdered over the course of a six-month period in the early 90s. And what I really wanted to ascertain from that were a number of things. Over and above, why are we sitting here in 2022 and those cases have never been solved Mm. and no one has been held to account for their murders? Great question. But how do we get to that place where some 30-odd years later we are still, with all of the resources and all of the skills and all of the people that were involved over time, including shifting the way the double Jeopardy law worked for crying out loud. How, after all that, we could not get a prosecution? Mm. So I was really interested in, in deep diving into the investigative processes. Police biases were a major factor back then, you know, stereotyping you know, walkabout syndrome and you're not jumping on reports of missing persons and those sorts of things. How the media tapped into that as well. So media have such a powerful role Mm. and I found that really interesting to work, you know, out where the media went wrong and, and let 
the community down because, as we know, it's not just about the immediate family because the mob is the mob. It involves everybody, auntie, uncle, you know, sisters, Mm. brothers, cousins. And it was interesting to see the broader social consequences of that. So what does that mean for legislation? What does that mean for the community? What does that mean for white race privilege in, you know, if that was a series of, of white children, would we be having this conversation today? So it opened up a Pandora's box of different um, questions. So being able to research that and try and work out where it went wrong, there wasn't one place which was really just so disappointing. It was the fact that they sent a child protection officer to do the bulk of the investigations. And it's like, wow, okay, that's interesting. And not taking you know, key pieces of evidence were contaminated, not asking the right questions of the right people. So it was just a comedy of errors that just played out over time, which you couldn't go back from. So even though they had a person of interest and that person of interest was actually arrested and charged with two of the murders, um, they couldn't pin the crime on him and he was acquitted. Because of error. Was it a comedy of errors or was it systemic failure? Both. Both. It was systemic failure and it was lots of mistakes made along the way with just the way the evidence was done, the way the interviews were handled or not done. Mm. Um, and even with Colin Walker, the 16-year-old girl who whose body's never been found, I mean, that has pr- profound consequences because of their culture, because they weren't actually able to, to lay her to rest. Mm. She is now, her soul is roaming and isn't at rest. So that's another layer of, of trauma for that family and that community over and above the fact that the individual that they're pretty sure committed the murders was never held to task. So it was a really, really complex study. and But I I enjoyed digging into that. So that was probably one of my favourite pieces of assessment because it just highlighted the fact that we have gone no closer to changing the way we deal with Indigenous social problems and justice issues than we were 30 years ago. I mean, their access to justice is still compromised. Their access to legal representation, their access to being heard on a public forum without standing in front of Parliament with flags. I mean, if that is the only way they can shake and rattle and roll, that's problematic in itself. So that's something that I I would really hope to see change, Mm. is that we can disrupt that. How are we going to do that? How do you think that deep diving case study will influence your own practice? I think, and it's it's not just in, in that space, it's in all spaces, is never be afraid to ask the difficult questions. Mm. Don't take things on face value. Don't believe the he said, she said. Always chase down what you need to chase down yourself. And strive to be a voice for them. That's what I would like to do is I would really like to see myself doing some time up in Darwin 
because some of, and I know from my own studies, uh, the John Dale, you know, detention centre and all of those things that, you know, have been problematic over time and the way that youth and Indigenous are actually massively over, overrepresented over there. And it's, prob- it's such a, a cesspool of, of trauma, on trauma, on trauma. And to get into that system and see how we could change that. Mm. But I've also experienced that as, you know, a white Australian travelling out back. Northern Territory for six months back in 2008 where we needed to go and get a window replaced because it smashed out travelling around. So we went into Catherine and we rocked up to a windscreen replacement centre and there was a gentleman in a sedan who had a broken windscreen and he was Indigenous. And we rocked up and we were waiting for the place to open at 8 o'clock and we were having a chat. Really, really friendly, just a nice guy. The doors open, middle-aged white man comes out and comes straight up to my husband and says, how can I help? Oh. And my husband says, I'm sorry, but this gentleman was here before us. It's okay, he can wait. That just prickled the hair on the back of my neck and... Let's just say, Jodie, that man got his wings green before we did. But it's just those little issues of discrimination, of segregation, of, of sheer just complete apathy towards them as being rightful humans who get to make their own choices, who get to have a say, who get to have rights. Um, so disrespected Mm. and that is problematic and troublesome and it really grinds my gears Mm. it's that challenging stuff around learning to be an appropriate ally which is so often about Mm. not dominating the space and not occupying the space but finding ways for other voices to be heard which requires a significant level, I think, of humility around who we are and understanding how we need to challenge systems to do things differently. When we recognise that systems are not working, how to shift that balance. It is a privilege and a pleasure to have you in class and thank you so much for having this chat with to me today, Julie. I really appreciate your presence in the university. Oh, thanks. Jodie, the feeling is mutual. It's been an absolute privilege. Thanks. You are so welcome. This podcast was hosted and produced by the excellent Dr. Jodie Deeth. Editing by Kelsey Adams. That's me. Music by Poddington Bear. This podcast was developed with support from the Queensland University of Technology. Thank you for listening.